Chilling out, building an astrolabe. I'm straight jaying off, thinking about you, babe. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and every episode I'm going to be dipping my tongs into a bucket of liquid nitrogen and extracting a brittle rose made of unadulterated real talk. Don't question the metaphor. The great thing about doing a writing podcast is I have no responsibility to respond to current affairs or in any way engage with the messy and painful nuances of real life. That's partially why I got into writing in the first place, to escape from the world with all its horrors and adult responsibility. A lot of the time, I feel like a seven-year-old who got injected with growth serum and is now expected to bumble his way through dinners, weddings and complicated financial transactions when all he wants to do is eat peanut butter sandwiches and play Donkey Kong. The political situation in the UK is moving so fast that by the time I record this, the Bank of England will have declared POGS legal currency and the front runner for our next Prime Minister will be a child made entirely of bees. The temptation was to trot out a glib canard about how we need fiction now more than ever. Because that's what authors have been saying over the last week. They have their book launches and, oh dear, the country's looking the other way because everything's on fire. But the author has something to sell, so they go, In troubled times, we need the humanity and dynamism of fiction to inspire us to do better, to give us hope, to bring us together. Which is self-serving poppycock, isn't it? You don't hear chefs jumping in to go, This referendum has exposed the deep schisms in our society, and more than ever, we need food. Which would at least be vaguely true. I mean, food crosses ideological boundaries, it brings people together, we require it to live. Not true of the novel. As our country struggles to heal from this vicious and divisive campaign, we need pottery more than ever. No one would say that, it sounds pompous and utterly false. But writers are, by and large, broken obsessives. We're the alchemists of our time. Romanticised, diligent, pursuing a craft that, in practical terms is complete bollocks. And because we love it, because we pour so much time into it, our tendency is to oversell it, to overpromise, to mythologise the process and the producer. So if you're looking at your writing this week and wondering, how does this speak to the current crisis? How does this change the world? Guess what? Probably doesn't. Not directly anyway. And that's fine. Because if you're anything like me, Novels have sometimes been a lifeline. You'll have had weeks where you've crawled inside the snug sleeping bag of a story to escape work or a breakup or just the relentless grinding fear of being alive. The novel is an intimate relationship. It's not the press of a 10,000 strong crowd marching on Westminster. It's a lover's breath in your ear. I, <laughs> I cannot say that line without sounding really fucking creepy. I'm so sorry, those of you who just feel after hearing that that you will never have sex again it's fine you'll be all right Uh, look i'm not saying that fiction can't be political of course it can but i'd argue that we make our ideological decisions on a much more emotional primal level than we care to admit and so if you really want to change the world the only way to do it is to sit yourself down with just one other person and speak to their heart right As always, you can read a transcript of today's extract in the show notes on my website, timclapert.co.uk, if you'd like to submit for a future show. Wait till the end for details. Today's extract is untitled, and it's by Rebecca. That's it. Now I know you're not listening. You should go to bed. She wiggled her toes by his head. See? 
fully awake. Andrew sighed and smiled and sat up. His twin's hands were under her ears, eyes closed as he stretched out, head resting by the foot of his bed. Her brown hair fanned out across her arms and down the side of the bed, and a few dark malted strands floated briefly as she yawned like a lion. They'd been talking for the last two hours, and though he was irritated that he was going to be late for the grand opening in the city, he didn't mind too much. She was one of the only people he truly wanted to give the time of day. What did I just say then? You said... You said... You said the last one was emphatic, like she was standing on the very edge of an epiphany. You said... She said drowsily again. Hey... You said that you were having trouble with your girlfriend, Hannah. See? She said in a tired, triumphant way. I was listening. Her name is Helen, and she's a perfect goddess. Pay attention. That's what you said about Whitney, and Jolene, and Amy, Katharina, Vivian, and Sam. Maybe, she yawned again. Maybe you should find... Find? Find, she restated. A girl who isn't perfect. You know, mix it up. Perfect's boring. And who the hell ever said that? Me? Well, that's what all the perfect people say. Okay, Rebecca, here's my suggestions. That's it. Now I know you're not listening. You should go to bed. So this is a tepid opening bid. There's some unattributed, comprehensible dialogue, a character addressing a second party, and a bit of mild tension. It's fine? If that sounds like I'm damning you with faint praise, Rebecca, I'm not. I'm lightly scolding you with faint praise. I'm passively, aggressively tutting at your listening to your iPod in the silent carriage with faint praise. I'm not condemning you to eternal torment in the fires of hell with faint praise. That would be a massive overreaction. Still, at least it would be fucking interesting. No, I'm joking. This couple of lines genuinely are fine. You don't have to open your novel with a bananas, all-singing, all-dancing action sequence where a chimpanzee with a chain gun sighs through a phalanx of robot spiders rapidly encircling a distressed baby. Some readers, whisper it, might even find such technicolour shenanigans a bit try-hard. I know. What po-faced monocle polishers. So it's okay to be subtle or coy or sophisticated. A chaffinch is as specific as a kraken and, in the right hands, just as wondrous. You can slow pedal it, but if you do, your story still has to happen somewhere. You have to locate your narrative in a world. My main criticism here is there's nothing specific in these opening two lines except the word bed. And even bed is being used in the abstract sense, as in you should go to sleep. I'm not suggesting good dialogue should be a tangy Salma Gundy of proper nouns and concrete nouns. Otherwise, all your characters would be speaking in this fruity, over-articulated voice like, Dear Sir Richard, pray join me in the atrium for Lapsang Souchong with tincture of wood wasp and tell me of your drafts match against Baron Narcissus in Fiji. But there's a whole lot of space on that continuum. Nothing anchors your first lines in a place or time or to specific people. It's not like they're sitting in an already established space. That's it. Now I know you're not listening. You should go to bed. So given that there's neither specificity nor drama there, the story hasn't really started yet. She wiggled her toes by his head. See? Fully awake. 
wait, hang on, we didn't get an attribution for the first bit of dialogue, and, and then you give us this beat. She wiggled her toes by his head, which actually introduces two characters simultaneously. Now, by process of not terribly hard ratiocination, and simply by reading on, I can figure out that the first line was said by him, and the second, following this beat, by her. But you make me work for it. We're trained to expect that the character who acts immediately after an unattributed piece of dialogue is probably the speaker. But it's also an informal convention that if you stick a single beat before a piece of dialogue, the character featured in that beat is the speaker. So if I write, Donald flicked a Sabutio player off the green bass pitch into the fireplace. I'm bored, baby. Let's fuck. We understand that it is Donald who is randy and understimulated and, frankly, inconsiderate to his fellow table football enthusiast. But then I find poor sportsmanship an incredible turn-on. What you've done with your dialogue beat is simultaneously follow one piece of unattributed dialogue while prefixing another. And then, in an act of diabolical cunning, you've included two characters in the sentence. As I've said before, we can sift through this and work out who's saying what. Some readers will guess right first pass. Others will come back a couple of times before getting it. I mean, a lot of the time you won't consciously notice the eye tripping up on little grammatical ambiguities like this. It's rare that a beta reader or even an agent will feed back on your work with that level of line-by-line -line acuity. But what readers will become broadly aware of is a sense of getting bogged down in the prose, a lack of clarity, a wooliness to the scene. It won't feel readable. And in case you can't hear, I'm putting that word in bunny quotes because it's so often dropped into conversations about good writing and so, so poorly understood. I know it when I see it. Editors will tell you, referring to readability. Well, fine, it's not their job to walk you through how to write a book. But what I'm telling you is 80% of the battle is clarity, is chopping out the waffle and the ambiguity, is stopping your prose sounding like the interminable monologue of a drunk trying to explain phenomenological absolutism to a bin. But at least, Rebecca, at least with the mention of toes and a he and a she, we've got the genders of two characters and a suggestion of their spatial relation and something physical. Toe wiggling suggests tone, too. You don't have toe wiggling in gritty realism or grim psychological thrillers, unless those toes are about to get cut off with a pair of secateurs. So, especially this early in the story, you're signalling to the reader that this will be a light read. Andrew sighed and smiled and sat up. Good that we get a name here. I would have liked to see his name earlier. All three actions here are a bit blah, though, and the sequence feels odd. Like, he sighed, he smiled, he sat up. They sound unrelated, like he's cycling through his repertoire of authentic human reactions before powering down. More seriously, there's still no hint of tension or story, and, and these actions happen essentially against a blank white background. We have no sense of location. Warning, warning, I'm going to mention something I bang on about a lot. Ready? Good. Whose story is this? Who is the POV character? Are we watching them both via a third-person omniscient narrator, or is this supposed to be filtered through Andrew's perspective? Later on in the piece, we get access to his thoughts, so the scene is implicitly via him. But then here, we're told he smiled, which implies an external viewpoint. Well, I mean, I guess you can feel yourself smiling, can't you, unless you've got an anaesthetised face, but any expression, like a scowl, a frown, etc., invites the reader to view the character in question externally. If you use it to describe an action of a viewpoint character, it jars us out of their perspective. His twin's hands were under her ears, eyes closed as she stretched out, 
head resting by the foot of his bed. His twin's hands were is such an awkward phrase. I love what you're going for here. You're larding the sentence with a juicy little tidbit of information. Knowing that they're twins it is great, Rebecca. You are right to follow that impulse. But introducing the information like this is just clunky. Give us her name first. It took me so long to figure out where they are in relation to one another. I dare say some listeners will have immediately understood on the first pass, but it genuinely took me three or four reads of the whole piece before I decided that, ah, they're on a bed and they're top and tailing it lying next to one another. I think you could simplify this just by starting the sentence, she lay with her hands under her ears, eyes closed, head resting against the foot of the bed. Although I'm not sure resting her head by the foot of the bed really implies that she's on it. It makes it sound like she's lying on the floor with her head against the end of the bed. I was trying to work out how you'd get round this. I think the problem might be the word by versus on, because I was trying to work out what the name for the end of the bed was. I thought for a while it might be headboard, but I don't think that's right because that's the bit at the top. It's not bedstead either. I think that might be the frame. If anyone knows what the end bit at a bed, the crossbeam at the end of a bed is, please, please let me know. Her brown hair fanned out across her arms and down the side of the bed, and a few dark malted strands floated briefly as she yawned like a lion. This makes it clearer that she's on the bed, although we shouldn't have to wait till later lines to clarify what should be clear in a single pass. But I do quite like this sentence. There's nothing outstanding in the language. You're tickling the soft, fuzzy belly of familiarity without inappropriately groping the genitals of cliché, but it flows nicely and it's visual. Her brown hair, combined with the lion yawn simile, ought to feel hackneyed, but somehow, for me, it doesn't. You own it. It feels simple and true, which is a massive win. That final and, though, is a conjunction too far. Just end the first sentence at bed, then start a new one with a few dark. Sometimes it feels stylistically daring to string a bunch of ands together. We all do it, imagining it will sound breathless or the images will slam together in this kaleidoscopic wonderland. Then you read it back and it just sounds ham-fisted and shit. Welcome to my experience of rereading anything I've written ever. Yay, stringent standards that shade into self-loathing. They've been talking for the last two hours, and though he was irritated that he was going to be late for the grand opening in the city, he didn't mind too much. So you mean they'd here? That's a simple typo, I assume. The grand opening in the city. The grand opening in the shitty, more like. And the grand opening is a huge bumhole. See, I wouldn't be able to make that puerile joke if you'd been specific, Rebecca. What's opening? What city is it? Make your words count. Don't use vague nouns when you can really drill down and be accurate. I mean, look, I take this to extremes. If a character has a gun, I go and look up a specific model and I find out what ammunition it takes and the history of it and how you load it and how much it weighs. It's not enough for a character to pick up a book to swat a fly with. I have to make up a title, a type of binding, and I'll probably footnote out a little extract. And in fact, the thing that I get criticised the most for, and I think it's a not unreasonable criticism, is that a lot of my prose is bogged down with irrelevant, albeit lush, detail. And look, sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it borders on pathological. Certainly an author with healthy self-esteem would leave a lot of that fleshing out of details until a second draft, concentrating primarily on sketching out the broad shape of their world. Yes, inventing rich details during the first draft can be a source of inspiration that feeds into later scenes, but it can also be an avoidance behaviour and a huge waste of time when you end up cutting that entire section anyway. 
I think it's the same impulse whereby if you're sketching someone, instead of making some very rough marks to get the proportions right, you spend two hours doing this very beautifully shaded, very elaborate ear. Then when you try to move on to the rest of it, it all feels a bit slapdash by comparison. Oh, and because you haven't marked the proportions outright, the ear turns out to be as big as the guy's arm. Be kind to yourself during your first drafts is what I'm saying. And yes, I'm talking to you, Tim Clare who is saying these words now. Be kind to yourself, Tim. Perfectionism is a curse. Anyway, look, Rebecca, I, I think there's some cool back and forth with these characters, some well-observed little beats. By the end of the piece, I'm starting to get an ever so slightly creepy vibe off the two of them. Maybe I've just got unexamined twin prejudice. I don't know. But I am interested and I just want more richness, more specificity and, yeah, frankly, a bit more tension. At the moment, they feel like they're floating in a grey mist. I want a time, a place, and I want a problem. I want the room to become a third character. I just want you to do the work to make this scene really sing. And that's it. If you'd like to submit your own writing to the podcast, please go to timclairpoet.co.uk and click the link in the show notes. Read the submission guide, then bang me a piece. If you'd like to support the podcast, share it. Tell people about it. That's it. If you'd like to support me, buy my novel, The Honours. Buy it for yourself and buy it for a dear friend. I don't have anything else to say except sincere thanks for listening. You're a great person. You know that way. You probably forget sometimes. You're great. Deal with it.